0: Hey, everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you're listening to Coffin Talk, Exit Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. Today, I'm very lucky to have with us a guest named Amanda Webster, who's local from Phoenix, Scottsdale area in Arizona. Hi, Amanda. Hello. How are you? I'm doing really good, actually. We're doing this kind of early in the day, and I tend to like early in the day. So.
1: I'm the same. I feel most productive early in the day. I've knocked out so much stuff, and it's only 10 o'clock. So.
0: Awesome. Well, let's knock out a podcast. What do you say? yes cool um so amanda i always ask people pretty much the same question which is uh how old are you where did you grow up and what generation do you think you belong to
1: i am 35 i grew up in lebanon missouri little tiny hickle uh town that civilization forgot about and i i really think that i was in the right generation i grew up in the 90s i was a 90s kid i loved it i wish i could kind of relive the 90s sometimes because it was just such fun times. Uh, the music was great. The movies were great. The shows were great. I have nothing to complain about. So uh, I grew up in the right generation.
0: Awesome. I like that. Um, yeah. And that's a very suitable answer. So um, we met through like a writing group here locally a couple years ago, but along the way we became friends. And one of the things I discovered about you was that you do have not only an uh, extensive experience with the subject of death, but, Your actual, like, story of your kind of childhood adolescence with death is pretty remarkable to me. So I am going to jump into that and then ask you about your philosophy, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Awesome. So this is about the most planned I've ever been on this podcast. I have a a whole whopping one question that I planned. Um, So if you don't mind, can you relate your experience with both of your parents and what happened when you were, like, 17 to 19?
1: Um, Are you talking about my parents' death?
0: Yeah, that is exactly what I'm talking about. I was trying to be, you know, (laughs) yeah, sorry. So my
1: parents, my parents, uh, I was 20 and 22 respectively. Uh, My dad, that's okay. My dad passed away when I was 20. And even though he was terminal, so we quote unquote expected it. You still never really can prepare yourself for when that happens. And it just rocked our entire family, our entire world, because I grew up with my parents. I didn't really have closeness with extended family. I didn't really do very well at making friends, particularly until my teenage years, and then I'd moved away, so I wasn't even close to any of those people. So my dad passed when I was 20, and I didn't even really know what to think or how to react to it, because I'd I'd experienced death with my grandma, my grandpa, people like that but like I said I I never had a really really close connection to those people so it's very different when it's somebody that's that's that close to you and then two years later uh, my mom passed away we just moved to California so I knew absolutely nobody I was in this new town and my mom was everything to me she was really you know that one that one thing that I had left and I was so very close to her we were best friends uh, and I, even though I was 22, we were still living together. We still had a very, very close relationship. And she just had a heart attack out of nowhere. And it was, I woke up a morning, I was putting on makeup, tweezing my eyebrows and stuff to get ready to go out to breakfast with her. She started having chest pains. I recognized it as a heart attack. Uh, within 24 hours, she was gone. She had heart surgery, um, they put heart stents in. But it was just one morning I woke up planning breakfast with my mom, and the next morning I had to try to process the fact that she just wasn't there and that that's a very intense 24 hours to try to you know go from one extreme to the other
0: yeah and i've heard this story firsthand through you more than once because i've asked you about it and i've also read your memoir which is uh not out there yet but will be and uh no matter what no matter how many times you relate this to me my heart seizes and chokes up and i just get very sad so that's that's I think even our audience could probably hear that in my voice right now. It's just, it sucks. And um, so I want to dig deep into this it sucks question um, because my parents with the fortune that I have are still with me, but we all know as children, because every single human is a child technically, that this is supposed to happen, but not the way it did for you, I think. And so was it... I'm going to say, how did you bounce back from that? Because you are 35 and you're doing fine. And so you did bounce back from that technically. But what what was that process like?
1: Eventually, I bounced back. Uh, but I had to fall pretty far down uh, to get to a place where I even knew what bounce, that bouncing back was a possibility. My whole life fell into the mud when my mom passed away. It was just an absolute living hell because I couldn't come to terms with it. I ended up getting in a relationship pretty much right after because I felt like I had to have somebody. I had to have a safe person. I had to have uh, some kind of companion to help me uh, through the grief and everything. So I ended up getting in a relationship right after that was just an absolute nightmare. I turned very emotionally abusive pretty quickly and I fell into drugs. I. Uh, Went back into self-harming myself and things just spiraled out of control uh, for years i went in and out of therapy i tried medications i tried yoga i tried going to school i tried doing productive things and i really just could not get i couldn't find my, my footing i couldn't find any sense of life and i remember sitting there going i died when my mom died and this is my hell and i'm just going to keep perpetuating this hell loop forever and it terrified me and i felt very dissociated i felt like i was outside of myself that this wasn't even a real the real world anymore i started getting this really bad association for quite some time where i'm just going no i'm not even in the real world anymore i can't be part of that world anymore i felt like my world stopped spinning when my mom died uh, so i just i didn't know really what to do. And the only healthy, healthy coping mechanism I had was listening to Lincoln Park all the time, just constantly. Um, and
0: our audience is really wide. So I'm just going to drop in real quick. That's the name of a band, not just an area of Chicago. Yeah. So, uh, yeah.
1: Just... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's also a park in, um, in California. There's a oh, wow. <laughs> Lincoln Park in California as well. But yes, uh, it's a band. And I remember listening. I, I found out about them when I was 16. My mom had given me uh, their, their first the popular album hybrid theory and it had helped me so much through you know the process of being sexually assaulted when i was 16 losing my parents all these different things it gave me something to relate to but that's pretty much the only healthy coping mechanism i had now most everything else was just drugs and, and self-harm and anything i could do really just to get through each day and in 2017 Um, the lead singer, ended up losing his life to suicide. And I felt like I'd barely been holding myself together uh, just after my mom died. And for some reason, something in that really just broke me. It forced me to let go of the only security blanket I had. So here I am again, faced with death. This time, someone I didn't even know, but it so profoundly affected me because this was, you know, my comfort blanket, my security blanket. and. I remember that was what really just kicked a downward spiral into drugs and self-harm that uh, that led me to the ledge of a Canadian hotel room um, in October of 2018 where I almost lost my own life to suicide so, because I just felt so alone.
0: And I just want to slow this down a little bit for our audience uh, because you, it's it's pretty heavy, and so I just want to relate it the way I'm hearing it, which is like, you were doing fine. You had two parents. They loved you. You knew your father was going to pass away before you wanted him to, but he did pass and it came and went pretty quickly and it was devastating, but at least you had your mom. Then you moved to California and then you actually like took your mom to the hospital or like called the ambulance, whatever. And you know, she passed away within 24 hours. So then you just go into this, what I would say is like justifiable phase of, of I do not depression is the wrong word, but whatever, you know? And, uh, But through that, you're kind of clinging with this, not hero-worshipping, it's not the fact that he's a famous musician, it's the music and the lyrics and and the words of, um, sorry, what's his name again?
1: Chester Bennington. Yeah,
0: thank you, Chester Bennington, um, from Linkin Park, who then famously uh, committed suicide in 2017, like you said. So now you had, like, the death of another death, which pulls you down again, and then now you're considering suicide. So can you just, the reason I said slow it down, can you explain how like people dying is leading you to wanting to die. I I think that's something we've never talked about on this podcast and it's worth stopping on.
1: Like I said, I felt completely alone. You know, we form these bonds with these people. And even though we know that life isn't eternal, um, or at least most of us accept that at least our physical life isn't eternal. We form these bonds with these people and we don't expect them to just one day not be there. This is a security that we have and because we don't really prepare ourselves for that when it does happen we don't have a safety net for me i didn't have a safety net i didn't expect my mom to die i she was she was 60 you know that's pretty young for today's standards so i had no preparation i had no real idea how to live in the real world or how to be the person that society expected me to be and i know that i would had this this mental disorder uh, for quite some time. I would struggled with clinical depression uh, for quite some time since my teen years. And I, I, I remember watching the Joker and and he had written in his journal, the worst part about mental illness is people expecting you to pretend that you don't have it or something to that effect. And that's that's how I felt. I, I felt like now I was in this world where I couldn't be myself. I had to constantly pretend that I was someone I wasn't to appease everyone else. And Number one, it was, I was already exhausted because I, I just lost my mom, you know, and anybody that's been through grief or depression, you know, it's exhausting. It's It just drains you. It drains life force right out of you. So I'm already exhausted, but already having this this mental struggle and now not having anyone to kind of help me through it, I just felt desperate. It got to a point where when I was on that ledge, I just, I remember thinking two things. Um, when I was looking down, one was I hope this doesn't hurt because I just don't want to hurt anymore. And two was this is what's best for everyone else. This is what's best for at the time I had, well, I still have, but um, I, I in the in the interim had um, a son who was seven or eight at the time, and I just remember thinking that this is um, what's going to be best for my son. This is going to be what's best for my friends because they were very far away and they couldn't really help um, in a very functional way. So I felt guilty, you know, that I was constantly putting this on my friends when they couldn't even be there to, to do anything about it. And I just felt so very desperate because I would be, I tried everything. I'd went to the therapy. I'd taken the meds that they told me to take. I'd done all of these things. I'd read self-help books till my eyes could have bled. I did everything people told me to do and nothing was helping. And pain was just so overwhelming. I couldn't do it anymore. I felt like I just couldn't do it alone and I had no real guidance.
0: And, and for our audiences, uh, cause you're, again you're just telling your story you're and you're telling it accurately but i knew knew you and know you and so i knew you at this time it's not like you were like leaving your son and like like you had a very close relationship you still do and you had one at the time and you split time with his father and and yourself so i just want to make it clear to the audience she wasn't like bilking on her responsibilities it's the opposite she was trying to keep up with the joneses she was trying am i correct in saying this
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I thought it was what was best for him. People say that suicide is a selfish decision, but when you're in that mindset, you think it's what's best for everybody in your life. You've come to the conclusion that you're a burden. This is what the darkness in your head tells you. You're a burden. You're a terrible parent. You're a terrible friend. You're a terrible partner. And everyone would be better off without you. So at the end of the day, it comes down to I'm doing what's best for everyone else. Yes, I hurt. And yes, I had this overwhelming pain and I didn't want to feel that anymore. But I was really sitting there going, no, just do it for him. Just do it for the people that you love the most.
0: And so now I'm going to kind of throw you a curveball. In that moment, did you at all think about what might happen to you after you died? Not like the pain of the splat on the sidewalk, but like after that, like where your consciousness would go, is there a hell? Like, did you have any of those thoughts in that moment on that ledge?
1: You know, it's something that had always bothered me before because I was raised Baptist. I grew up in the church. And I kind of denounced my faith in my late teen years. Uh, it's something that I ruminated on a lot because I always had this fear of death. You know, I was always terrified of dying. I was either terrified of dying because when I was religious, I was told I wasn't good enough. You know, that's the thing of religion. You're constantly told you're not good enough. You have this inherent sin. No matter what you do, you're still this bad person. That's kind of the message that I get from from uh, organized religion. and the Judeo-Christian faith, that was the message that I was being sent as a child. Then when I denounced my faith just because I didn't believe I wanted to, but I just couldn't bring myself to believe anymore. Uh, then I had this fear of death because I'm going, OK, well, it's just lights out and that's it. And <laughs> there's nothing after that. So to me, it—my my fear isn't hell. I don't believe that there's a hell. My fear is it's just there's nothing that we're going to die and just not exist. And that terrifies me uh, because I like my existence, you know, even, even in the painful moments, I didn't want it not exist, but it finally got to the point where I just went, I don't care. I just, I don't care. I cannot take this pain anymore. I don't care. Um, I felt like I'd already been in hell. Uh, as I said, I felt like I'd been in this perpetual hell loop. So in my head, nothing has to be better than this. And no I really didn't have any more fear when I was standing there and that's the most dangerous place to be truthfully is when you're not afraid anymore you're not afraid of what could happen you know what could happen to the people in your life what could happen to you after you die you have no fear I was just standing there going I don't care at all
0: and so uh, I am gonna let you I'm not let you I'm I'm gonna ask you to complete that story eventually but I I want to still hang in this like limbo territory um So currently, right now, do you have a quote unquote fear of dying because you think that's it? Lights out, kaput, nothing else ever again.
1: Yeah, yeah, I do have a fear slash discomfort. Most people, when they lose somebody, you know, they have that comfort of believing, oh, I'll see them again one day. Oh, they're watching over me. Oh, they're they're out there somewhere. You know, and we have that comfort. Most people have that comfort of believing that they're out there somewhere. They're not gone, but when you have the belief system that I, I almost want to say, unfortunately have, it's not that I want to have it. It's just what I believe. Um, it's, it's really hard to cope with that.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I, I definitely agree. Um, so how do you live your life now? And again, I am going to go back to that story, so I will circle back, but I want to know right now, in the time since that moment on the ledge, obviously you didn't jump and obviously you're still here. And I know that things are much better now, much, much, much better. I'm actually gonna make you plug your programs and what you are now doing for a career. Um, but how does that weigh on you? Um, this this fear, like how does it motivate the decisions you make while you're alive?
1: Well, I realize that the time that we have here is very limited and whether there's something else or not is kind of irrelevant because this is our human experience, you know, right here. This is what we get to this is our playtime. This is our recess, you know. So whether there's something else is kind of irrelevant at the end of the day because this experience will end one day and pretty much everybody can agree with that, whether you believe that there's something else or not. We we all understand that our experience in this human form will eventually end. And now I look at it more like a video game as opposed to that dread feeling of getting up in the morning. I look at my life as a video game. So I get up and I go, okay, I'm probably going to have some monsters to slay. And I'm probably going to have to collect some items today because, you know, that's life. And when you think about it, if you're a nerd like me, nobody's going to buy a game where you just walk right in, save the princess, and that's it. You just walk right in, you pick her up, you you leave. You know, what kind of game would that be? That would be boring as hell. And I feel that we ignore... Life is also like that. Stuff's going to happen. Uncomfortable stuff's going to happen. Tragic stuff's going to happen. But we just have to build up our strength. We have to build up our weapons. We have to build up our armor. We have to collect the items to be able to cope with these situations because we're not unique. I, I know I'm not the only person in the world who have ever lost my parents or to have ever experienced grief, even with a mental disorder. And of course, my experience and my story is unique in and of itself. But It's something we all have to confront we all have to confront grief we all have to confront our own mortality but it's how we live now and i could sit here for the rest of my life mourning my mom and i'll never get over it you know i'll never stop hurting in the back of my heart uh, over my parents they'll always be there that hole will always be there but i can choose to make them proud or i can choose to just lay down and die
0: that's incredible and i definitely now want to complete the story of what happened on that ledge and what happened since and why you now have this very healthy attitude which i do want to repeat for our audience i think it's very important to understand that while amanda has said that she now has purpose and meaning and does like approaches life differently like a video game it didn't change the fact that you still don't want to die that you still don't think your life will continue after this, and I think that's very important uh, as like understanding this story. So, with that said, you're on a ledge. You're pretty positive that you're going to be benefiting, actually, your own son and your—he uh, was your husband at the time, right?
1: Um. Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so your your husband, and and then you don't. So tell that story, whatever way you want.
1: It's funny because the only thing that brought me down was song playing at the right place in time had that song not came on i would have jumped and the song was breaking the habit by lincoln park
0: and this song came on on your your cd player in the room can you be a little more specific
1: no that's 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 the funny thing so there had not been her hair of anyone the whole i think about three days i'd been there there was nobody there was no cleaning crew you had to call in to get to the, the concierge they'd have to come up and let you in and stuff. I mean, even the guests weren't really out and about. There was nobody. And my room was in the middle of the hallway. So it's not like it would be the first room that somebody would go to for cleaning or whatever. But right at that very moment, the cleaning crew turned the ferrier on just outside my door. And it was Breaking the Habit by Lincoln Park. And I kind of thought I was hallucinating, to be honest with you. And I stepped down. Out of morbid curiosity, because I'm sitting there going, nah, this is just the soundtrack to my life. You know, my life is flashing before me and this is just my soundtrack. And of course, it's Linkin Park, because what else would it be? And I, I stepped down and went to the door to look out of morbid curiosity because I was kind of freaking out and thought that I was just having this, this crazy hallucination.
0: And just for the record, you're not on drugs at the time. I just want our audience to know that.
1: I was not on anything at all. No, I'd actually been, um, I'd stopped using in June and this was October. So um, I'd been, I'd been clean for several months. And so I opened the door and these two guys just look at me and I know I have to look like just a hot mess. You know, I've been falling apart in my room, just literally almost lost my life to suicide. I know I look like a hot mess and these guys just look at me. In that kind of uh, <laughs> sort of way, and I I just motioned to the city player and said "C'est ma chanson préférée," which means that's my favorite song, and we had this really brief little uh, French interaction because this is in Quebec, which is a French-speaking province, and we had this really brief French interaction. And I went back in my room, I closed the door, and I just fell apart. I just fell to my knees and absolutely fell apart. And I think that that was what I needed because I ne- I'd i cried a thousand times, probably thousands and thousands of times. I'd cried for my parents, over Chester, over you know all these different losses in my life. I'd cried and I'd cried and I'd cried, but I'd never just allowed myself to fall apart. I knew I was in that room. I wasn't going anywhere. There was nowhere really to go. And all I had was time with myself and I could do whatever I needed to do to start processing everything that had happened to me. And that was kind of my first step. and. In the time on the plane going back, you know, because I I left the next day. So in going back home and everything, I said, you know what? Fine. I'm going to give it my all for one year, one year. And if at the end of that one year, I have done every single thing I possibly can, be it, you know, if it has to be therapy, if it has to be changing my lifestyle, whatever it is I have to do, I'm going to do it for one year. And if at the end of that year, I still feel this desperate, I'm going to jump and the journey started at my mental health professional i went back to a therapist and said look this is what happened but i want to be happy because i feel like that's never really been the clinical goal it's always we want to make sure you don't hurt yourself we want to make sure you're not on drugs but nobody ever really cared whether or not i was happy and that woman literally looked me in the eye and said well that's not possible for someone like you meaning someone who had um, a serious mental illness i had an smi diagnosis and i tell you that just lit a fire under me. So if I wasn't already motivated enough after having this experience that brought me off the ledge and everything, that was just my Elwood's in the bunny costume when Warner told her she wasn't smart enough for law school. Because I, I knew I had to prove her wrong, and that was my revelation when I was at uh, the the mental health professional. Was she was never really going to help me be happy? She was never really going to be in my corner. I felt, and. I knew i had to do it on my own i knew i had to take control and i had to take my power back and i had to change my lifestyle because my lifestyle was not conducive to mental health in any way shape or form and i hadn't really come to terms with that i kept constantly relying on external factors be it my parents be it a therapist be it chester be it medication it was always something else has to fix me when i wasn't really broken i just needed some direction i just needed a solid foundation
0: and so i I, am spellbound and i love this story obviously this is like the most feel-good story ever and you're here telling it live so the audience knows the ending which is my other favorite part about this so um what was the road like then what did you do how did you like prove your own potential to yourself and others well really just to yourself
1: well at first At first, I didn't know what to do or where to go, because at this point, you know, I don't have my parents. My friends are a million miles away. The mental health professional let me down. So I don't really know what to do or where to go. And I'm laying there in bed and I'm going, okay, come on, universe. I need a sign. Is there a Linkin Park song I can listen to? Can I get a sign from my parents? Can I just get an angel that appears like on I I remember watching Touched by an Angel back in the in the 90s? And I'm sitting there going, can I get a Monica just to appear and and be my angel and give me some advice and and it was dead quiet and I was kind of disappointed because I'm sitting there going, come on, I just need something. I'm willing to do the work. I just need something. And I, I kept actually kind of talk to my parents. I was saying, look, I, I need your energy. I need you here. And there's nothing really here on this earth that represents you. You know, I can't really call. And literally in the middle of the thought, I went, Holy crap. And I ended up, my dad and I bonded watching professional wrestling growing up um, to the point that the, Guy that owned the wrestling organization that we watched, uh, where Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and all the really famous wrestlers were in the nineties, the guy that owned that, um, that organization walked me down the aisle at my wedding. So I thought about reaching out to him, but I went, no, you know what? I had done a certification under diamond Dallas page, who was one of my heroes growing up. And I guess in some way I thought of my dad and, And it kind of connected that I have this kind of living representation of my dad. Why not reach out? So I sent a message and I didn't really give details. I just said, you know, I'm really struggling mentally and I don't know what to do. And he said, you know what, buddy, you did this to yourself. It's on you to undo it. Wow. But I was so Angry, so very angry because I'm sitting there going, you don't understand. I didn't say this to him because, you know, he's a ex, uh, world heavyweight champion multiple times and I, I know that he could kick my butt. So I didn't say this, but I'm thinking, how dare you? You don't understand mental health. Blah, blah, blah. I shattered my phone against a wall. I literally threw my phone at the wall and shattered the screen. I was so mad. I lay there and I tossed and turned and grumbled and rah, rah, for hours. And then finally, in my head, I would have never said it out loud, but finally, i, I that's when I came to the revelation, I went, he's kind of right. You know, you're not living this lifestyle that's conducive to mental health. You went to school. Uh, my, my specialty was holistic nutrition. I was a mind-body wellness coach, but my specialty was holistic nutrition. And I'm going, you went to school. You know that what you're doing, the decisions you're making, the thoughts you have, the mindset you have, the none, none of this is conducive to mental health. So maybe that's where you should start, is having this solid foundation of being able to feed your brain being able to you give your your mind and your body the best fighting chance for this disease because that's what depression is it's a disease your body is in disease Uh, so I realized that I needed to have a solid foundation so I started you know implementing different strategies I will tell you there was a point where I literally almost put six rounds into a into a bunch of asparagus i was just it was it was a very stressful adjustment to make you know it's not easy when you when you have to make changes in your life and they're not comfortable and it's not what you're used to but once i started implementing these things i could feel the shift i could feel my mental health improving and i ended up dubbing them um, because it took me quite a while to really get into a place where i felt happy And I was told this wasn't possible. I was told that once you had a serious mental illness, the diagnosis for a serious mental illness, that that's lifelong and you'll never be decertified. I was decertified in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, (laughs) which that was just kind of my middle finger to everyone that told me I couldn't. I proved them wrong. Uh, But I ended up calling what I went through my five puzzle pieces of happiness because there was five major things that had to be implemented and had to be in place for me to really be at my Um, happiness potential at my optimal mental health. And I teach that now. I I do uh, free five-day challenges. Uh, You can go to happinessboost.life if you want to check that out, sign up for that, learn more about the five puzzle pieces. But if those things are not in place, if these five pieces are not in place, you're not going to be able to obtain optimal mental health. You can take the medication, you can go to the therapist, you can read every Wayne Dyer book and publication, but you're not giving your brain and body a fair chance.
0: Oh, my God. Amanda, we are up on the time, and that was the best ending ever. I am so, 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 so thankful. Um, This was such a different take and such a good take on life and death and how you live. And I really do want to encourage our audience base to check out that website. So can you repeat, again, your name and just, like, the best way to find you on the internet?
1: Yeah, so if you go to happinessboost.life, you can sign up for the five-day challenge where you can learn more about the five puzzle pieces of happiness. You can also find me on Instagram at Amanda Webster Health or on YouTube, Amanda Webster Health, where I do celebrity interviews. I've been uh, vlogging about my experiences with mental health, uh, having an SMI, being diagnosed BPD, uh, just the different struggles because we break the mental health stigma by talking about it. And that is my goal, is by breaking the stigma through conversation and honesty.
0: Well, my goal is to break the stigma of talking about death, so we're quite a team on this podcast because I feel like we we've are. Done both. Um, Amanda, thank you so much. This has been an incredible podcast. I actually hope to have you on again and to talk more extensively because there are so many other parts of the story we could talk about. But uh, in the meantime, you have definitely helped to put another nail in the coffin, so thank you again. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and this has been another episode of Coffin Talk, Exit Interviews with the Living.